From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. On today's Public Morality, we talk with award-winning broadcaster and author Tavis Smiley about poverty in America. Also, John Rayleigh, editorial page editor for the Winston-Salem Journal, talks about his new book, Rage to Redemption in the Sterilization Age. That's next on The Public Morality. Many have offered events such as those in Baltimore and in Ferguson, Missouri, reflect the underlying issues of poverty. But poverty is invariably discussed in the public discourse as a secondary consideration, though it's increasingly on the rise. According to the latest census data, nearly one in two Americans have fallen into poverty or could be classified as low income. Not since Lyndon Johnson has a president been so overt about tackling poverty. Not ironically, the narrative since Johnson's war on poverty has been focused on labeling it a failure to justify its systematic dismantling. Moreover, if the current political trend holds, there will be little attention given to poverty once the two major political parties select their nominees in 2016. My guest today is award-winning broadcaster, author, philanthropist, and entrepreneur, Tavis Smiley. In 2011, Smiley, along with Dr. Cornell West, conducted a nationwide poverty tour, and the result was the 2012 release of the book they co-authored entitled The Rich and the Rest of Us, A Poverty Manifesto. Tavis Smiley, welcome to The Public Morality. Byron Williams, an honor to be on with you. Let me start by saying congratulations on the new uh, on this new project. Uh, everything you, you put your hands to turns to gold, so I suspect in the coming months and years, we are going to be enlightened, encouraged, empowered, um, and inspired by the work that you do. And uh, I thank you for having me on one of your initial broadcasts. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure, brother. My pleasure. Um, where are we on poverty today? Nowhere near where we ought to be. Um, I believe that poverty is threatening our very democracy, and that might be a strong um, um, uh, sentiment to, to start this conversation with, but I believe that with every fiber of my being, um, that poverty is threatening our very democracy. I believe that poverty is now a matter of national security. Um, these numbers are not sustainable. One percent of the people cannot continue to own and control 40 percent of the wealth. Look at it this way, Byron. The top 400 wealthiest individuals, we're talking 400 people, have wealth equivalent to the bottom 150 million fellow citizens. 400 people Wealthy equivalent to the bottom 150 million fellow citizens. Those numbers are not sustainable. And, and so we're going to have to have a, a conversation, not even just about poverty, but about um, income inequality and about economic immobility. So it's not just about poverty. It's not even just about income inequality. It's about economic immobility, that we are living in a nation now where many believe that the best days of this country are behind it, and they base those sentiments, those feelings, on the fact that no matter how hard you work now, it is awfully difficult to be economically mobile. That is to say, to start poor and to become wealthy, because so many people have discovered that there is, how might I put this, a highway into poverty, but barely a sidewalk out. Mm, mm. Well, he's given those numbers that you just pointed out and, and the ones I uh, opened with. Mm -hmm. the, how can it be that we have the kind of wealth inequality you're talking about? One out of two people are either in poverty or somewhere near it. They can smell it. Yeah. And absolutely nothing is being dis dis uh, addressed or discussed in a meaningful way. Is it? 
it's as if our elected officials are are imitating Nero and feeling away as nearly half of America burns in economically. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. And uh, it, it would seem to me that th if there's anything that there is bipartisan consensus on in Washington, and you know how difficult that is to do. We just witnessed recently the eventual passage of this Trans-Pacific Partnership. I think the president is wrong on this particular issue with all due respect, and many Democrats, of course, in the House and the Senate think he is wrong and voted against this measure, but the president eventually got what he wanted, the authority um, to move forward with this Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, and so we will see what happens in the coming months and years as a result of what um, what this um, what this partnership, this trade agreement will ultimately bring, but I raise it only because it's just another shining example of the fact that you can't get bipartisan consensusship, uh, bipartisanship that is, on much of anything. We just witnessed what happened in South Carolina, in Charleston, and mm -hmm. we can't get a bipartisan consensus on uh, sensible gun laws in this country. So it's hard to get that sort of bipartisan consensus on anything except this. It would seem to me, based upon the point you just made, that there is at least a bipartisan consensus in Washington on poverty, and it is simply this, that the poor don't matter, that the poor don't count. And so the poor people end up being marginalized, they end up being taken for granted, they end up being a sort of market calculation, um, they end up uh, being poll tested, and because poor don't vote, uh, the poor don't vote at the levels of the, of the elite and the well-to-do, uh, then they just get disregarded. And so what we see happening is that the suffering, the suffering of these everyday people, Byron, is being rendered invisible. And the worst thing you can do to someone uh, is to render them invisible, to, to act as if their humanity and their dignity don't exist, as if their contribution to the country doesn't matter. And that's why I go back to my original point that this is a matter of poverty, that is, is now a matter of national security. Because when you have this many Americans, one out of two, as you said, in or near poverty, when that many people are feeling hopeless, your democracy is in trouble. You can't sustain it. Well, is it fair to say, then, that we are, at least in theory, in the midst of an economic recovery? I mean, any economic data that's positive is virtually meaningless for essentially half the nation. That's exactly right. And, and, and our language further, our language around this conversation is bankrupt. So to your point, when we hear economists talk about this, what they are referring to they're referring to this particular moment right now as a jobless recovery. Now, I ask you without any sense of humor. <laughs> well, you just, I'm sorry, I blew it. I'm sorry. No, no. I mean, what, what is a jobless recovery? If you got a, a recovery without any jobs, you ain't got no recovery. Right. But they keep telling us this is a jobless recovery. So when people say that it's a, that, that we're in the, that we're in a recovery, that there's an upswing, that things are looking better, we'll tell that to the millions of people in this country who are out of work and the, and the other uh, millions who have just given up looking for work. And so when, 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 when you read these numbers, that, that's the real tragedy. And, and, and anybody being honest will tell you this. Even economists, government economists, will tell you that these numbers are only so accurate because there's so many millions of fellow citizens who've just given up looking for work that whenever you see these unemployment numbers, particularly, and especially as they relate to people of color, you can't even believe the number. You might as well just double it on GP. Right. Well, you know, when, as you were talking, um, well, I had two things occurred to me. One, when you said a jobless recovery, I said, is that like getting a rebound without having the, without having the ball in your hand? I mean, just <laughs> you know. pretty much. That, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> and what I started to say a moment ago was that our that our language around this is bankrupt. So we think about these terms that we use: jobless recovery, minimum wage. Why 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 is it a minimum wage and not a living wage. Right. I mean, our, our language around this conversation is even so bankrupt. 
um, that it makes it difficult to take these issues seriously. And so when it comes to doing the kinds of things that Dr. West and I laid out in this book, The Rich and the Rest of Us, or this Poverty Manifesto, we laid out ten specific issues that we think need to be addressed if we are going to get serious about you know eradicating poverty, which I believe can be done. I believe that in 25 years, um, we could eradicate extreme poverty, poverty period, in this country. This is not a skill problem. This is a will problem. Do we have the will to make the eradication of poverty a priority in this country? It can be done if we were to take these issues seriously. And, and the first issue on our list is jobs, jobs, jobs with a living wage. Now, why is it that we can't get serious about jobs with a living wage in Washington but city by city, we see, as you well know, across the nation, a municipality starting to raise the minimum wage as, as high as $15 an hour. I'm glad to say that I live in L.A., where I speak to you from live right now, and we just raised it to $15, uh, phasing it in. But $15 in this city, it's happened in Seattle. There are other cities who've done the same thing. So city by city, we're starting to take this notion of a living wage much more seriously. And even at $15 an hour, that number is considerably low if we were keeping up with the rate of inflation over the last half century. But even $15 an hour is better than the 7 or 10 that, that, that people were making. But my question is, why is it that that becomes a city-by-city city proposition mm -hmm. in the richest nation in the history of the world, but not something that we can get traction on in Washington across the board nationally? Well, you know, is, is it uh, as you were talking, it occurred to me uh, as we're talking about discuss uh, about poverty, uh, is it fair to say that we really can't have a discussion uh, on poverty that does not include the spiritual poverty? And I mean, it's about the, the will that you're talking about mm -hmm. of the elected officials to address it. I mean, the folk, economic lack is not the only issue of poverty that we have here. No, there's a, there's a, there is a poverty again. Dr. West and I try to get to some of this in our text. There is a there there is a poverty of compassion. Mm -hmm. Uh, there is a, a, a poverty of imagination. There is a poverty of innovation. Um, there, 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 to your point, there, 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 there's a poverty of spirit. Um, there's a poverty of giving. Uh, there's a poverty of sharing. I mean, we, 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 are, we are burdened not just by this traditional notion of poverty, which is $24,000 for a family of four, a family of four, which is ridiculous on its, you know, on its face, right? Uh, that we're talking roughly twenty-five thousand dollars for a poverty for a family of four, rather uh, living at the poverty line. That's absurd. Who do you know that can live? What family of four do you know that can live off of you know twenty-five thousand dollars a year? So again, our, our language, our definitions around this is so bankrupt. But the fact that we have all these other poverties of spirit and of soul and uh, in our in our society writ large. That, that keep us from addressing the real issues is problematic. I mean, we're, here's what we're facing. I just, it, we're in commencement season or just came out of commencement season so, uh, here, here, you know, we're, as we're moving into the summer. And, and I, I end up giving, you know, a number of commencement speeches every year. And the theme that I tried to, to wrestle with this year, I don't, I don't like going to give speeches and I'm like you on Sunday morning, you don't preach the same sermon every week. And so I try not to. I hope in, not. Yeah, yeah. And, and so do your parishioners. Let me add. <laughs> so do your members. But I, 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 I attempt, and I say this with all seriousness, since we're talking about the spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I believe that 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 I am at my best when I stand behind a podium and I allow the spirit to flow through me. That is to say, to give the audience whatever God has laid on my heart to share with them on that particular day. Mm -hmm. So it's not about having two or three speeches that I just change the names, the locations, the dates, 
uh, and and speak to an audience of different faces, but I'm giving the same message. It just doesn't it doesn't work that way for me. I, mean, I have themes, of course, that I discuss all the time, but I want to be in the moment mm-hmm. and give that audience what I believe that we need to hear on that particular day. And so, in this commencement season, I found myself wrestling with this theme in a variety of ways in a number of places. But I was ultimately trying to to get to Byron was wrestling with this particular question: How do we advance our democracy? in a nation where so many of our fellow citizens are trying to to craft lives of meaning and purpose and value, but their vulnerabilities outnumber their possibilities. Mm. When your vulnerabilities outweigh your possibilities, how do you create a life of meaning and purpose and value? Here again, our democracy is in trouble when a good majority of our people are living lives every day where they're trying to do the best they can with what they have right where they are, but they're trying to navigate a journey where their vulnerabilities outweigh their possibilities, that's where I think we find ourselves in America. For all the talk about American exceptionalism, for all the talk about we're the best and we're the greatest, and for all the patriotism and the flag waving, for all the all the lies that we're going to be told for the next year and a half, year and a half of this presidential campaign, <clears throat> the data, excuse me, the data underscores that America, although the richest nation in the history of the world, is not as exceptional as we think we are. Our record doesn't match our, our, our hyperbole. Well, I just want to uh, just switch gears just ever so slightly because sure. in 2013, uh, which I view as the extension of your poverty tour, you did a primetime special on PBS where you talked about the school-to-prison pipeline. That's right. Talk about how that experience and how it relates to the poverty discussion we're having right now. We, we have more women and children living in poverty than any industrialized nation in the world per capita. We just have so many women and children who are struggling every day to try to make, make ends meet. And one of the critiques that we offered in this book, The Rich and the Rest of Us, Dr. West and myself, uh, one of the critiques was of the Clinton administration's effort at welfare reform. We call it welfare deform. Because the, the, the data is, is in now. Um, that, that welfare deform pushed more women and children into poverty um, than, um, than we want to admit. And what happened essentially was when we, when we pulled up the safety net and got caught up in this you know, work, uh, this, 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 this notion of uh, pushing these women and children off of public assistance and making them find jobs and et cetera, et cetera, and all the, all the political rhetoric that goes along with work, 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 and not being lazy, and back to Ronald Reagan and this notion of the welfare queen. Um, so we, we, we had this, this, this conversation during the Clinton years, and so the answer was to push women and children off of public assistance and make them get jobs, and whether they had child care or not, it was, it was, just, it was, it was, it was all hyperbole. And, and so what happens in, 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 in an economy where the jobs dissipate or the jobs disappear these women who have been forced to go get a job, now they're laid off, now they're downsized. They don't have a, they, they don't, it's not like they fall on a trampoline and bounce themselves back up into, you know, into making a decent living. They, there's no trampoline. There's no safety net. So they just hit the ground. They splat. And so, so many women and children, you know, have been pushed into poverty because we pulled up the safety net in this era of the Clinton years. Mm-hmm. in the name of welfare reform, and so now you see more women and children in poverty. I raise that only because um, when you look at what's happening to so many of these children um, in the education system, 
So they're already living in poverty, which means they go to school without having uh, a warm breakfast. Uh, many of them have difficulty sleeping because of the neighborhoods that they're in. You know all too well that they then have to get up and navigate a freaking, I mean, I'm trying to find the right way. They have to navigate a, uh, you know, a crime scene mm-hmm. <laughs> just trying to get to school and, and hope that they make it there and back alive. So this is what they're up against every day. Then they get to schools that are dilapidated, uh, and they don't have, they don't have, uh, they don't have books. Uh, and, and the story goes on and on and on. And so what happens is that we lose these children so long, and many of them, you know, too early get on this track of, uh, you know, cradle to, to, to prison. Uh, and so I did this special, um, uh, the school to prison pipeline just to really get us to focus in on how we are losing our children, how we're losing so many of them at such a young age, how we're not just talking about black and brown kids, we're talking about a whole lot of white kids who are being caught up in this, you know, this school-to-prison-to-prison pipeline. And the things that you and I, I mean, I know you were such a, you were such a good young man, you never got into trouble. <laughs> oh, no, but, <laughs> no. But the things that I used to get in trouble for in school, Byron, that I would be sent to the principal's office for, right. those things now get you a criminal record. So that when you're fighting in school, it wasn't like going to the principal's office and maybe going to detention, maybe if it was really bad, getting a day of suspension. Those things now end you up in front of a judge, and you end up truancy can get you a criminal record. Fighting can get you a criminal record. Getting caught too many times chewing gum can end you in front of a judge with a record. And so these kids, you know, this all started with Columbine, and you know, this, 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 we, we seen this, this young, this young uh, man, uh, Dylan Roof, who has confessed now to what happened in in Charleston in that historic Emanuel AME Church, twenty one year old white boy. Uh, I met a whole bunch of white boys just like that who were in trouble and dropped out of school, and this is what ends up happening. They end up self radicalizing over time because they end up feeling like misfits in society. That is not in any way to justify what he did, but it's about us taking a hard look at how we put these kids on that school-to-prison pipeline so early on because we end up rendering so many of them invisible because we won't take the issues of poverty that they live in every day and and the, the crisis in the education system more seriously. And once you have that criminal record at such a very early age, I mean, I would imagine that makes getting out of poverty even that much more difficult. No, it's what I, it's what I meant when I said earlier. There's a highway into poverty, but barely a sidewalk out. Once you get into poverty, it's hard to pull out. And once, as a young person, you develop a criminal record, the system just beats you down. And every little thing you do ends you up back on probation. And the truth of the matter is, I started to say a moment ago that I used the Dylan Roof example. All of this started with this zero-tolerance policy in the wake of Columbine, which you, you and your listeners will recall. So after Columbine, and even if one believes that this effort was well intended, it went awry awfully quickly. So we started this policy of zero tolerance, and it's that zero tolerance policy in the wake of Columbine that that put us in this situation where so many young people now are getting these criminal records. So again, our intentions might have been on you know uh, might have been well and, and good. But the the end result is something that we can't be proud of. I'm happy to say that as a result, not as a result, but in the in the research I was doing or did for that particular primetime special, I've done three of those. 
But in the research I did, I, I was able to discover that there are a lot of states, a lot of cities, a lot of municipalities, a lot of um, school districts, rather, Byron, that are now rethinking that notion of zero tolerance. And when you think about it, even in the wake of Columbine, it's awfully silly for us as adults to think that any child ain't ever going to make a mistake. Right. I mean, the whole notion of a zero, we don't have a zero tolerance policy for adults. Right. We make mistakes, and sometimes we make the same mistake repeatedly until we eventually learn it. How learn from it? How is it that we think that any child should be subject to a zero tolerance policy? It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, that, that's what it means to be a child to make mistakes. But we just we we put that law on the books, and it's just caused us all kind of uh, uh, difficulty in trying to, to to raise kids that are going to be good law abiding contributing citizens. Well, I'm going to segue one more time uh, with someone that uh, I know is important to both you and I, and it goes back to your one of your, your second most recent book, which happens to be my personal favorite. I thought you just hit it out the park, The Death of King, The Real Story of Martin Luther oh, King, you, man. Yeah. Uh, that, you, that you wrote, uh, uh, came out uh, earlier this year. And so much of King's final year, as you lay out, was was consumed with Vietnam and that relationship to poverty. So talk about that just for a few minutes. Yeah, well, you, you, you said it. Um, in the last year of King's life, and certainly prior to the last year, but in the last year, his focus was on what he called the triple threat facing our democracy. That triple threat, racism, poverty, and militarism. And what King, year was that? Said, was that 2015 or that was... That was the book came out in twenty late late twenty late twenty fourteen. No, I'm talking about your words. Your words sound like twenty fourteen. Oh, oh, no, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I, 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 as we say in the black church, Amen. Um, so this is King. This is King Byron in sixty seven, and King is saying that you know if we don't get serious about this triple threat, racism, poverty, and militarism, we're simply going to lose our democracy. Um, this is King in sixty seven. Racism, poverty, militarism, and so. He, 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 he advances this notion of the triple threat as part of his critique of the Vietnam War. And, and as far as King was concerned, in his Beyond Vietnam speech, April 4, 67, King says of the U.S. that we, America, are the greatest purveyors of violence in the world today. When that Negro stood up and called America the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, everything turned against him. The media turned on him. The White House turned on him. White America turned on him, black America turned on him, including the NAACP, the Urban League, Thurgood Marshall, Roy Wilkins, uh, Whitney Young, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., Carl T. Rowan, everybody. Uh, the bourgeois elite turned against Dr. King, and even everyday black folk turned against him because King was too passive for the younger generation, and they didn't want to hear about nonviolence. They wanted to hear black power. They wanted Stokely Carmichael and H. Wright Brown. So King, in the last year of his life, essentially has no constituency, but he's still committed to telling the truth about racism, poverty, and militarism. So you fast forward almost 50 years since his assassination, uh, and to your brilliant point, you know, that's exactly what's threatening our democracy today. When you see Ferguson and you see Baltimore and you see all these other places in New York uh, with Eric Garner, et cetera, et cetera, here in Los Angeles, um, you know, Cleveland, Tamir Rice, we could do this all day, sadly. What we are witnessing almost 50 years after his death is the racism, the poverty and the militarism, the confluence of those three things that I believe is threatening to tear this country apart at its very fiber. 
Well, when you were talking about the the unique coalition of people that were opposed to King during that time, it is as if there was a collective desire to just freeze him in the last five minutes of his keynote address at the March on Washington in 63 and ignore the evolution of a great man. That's exactly what it is. I mean, King is assassinated in 68. He gives the I Have a Dream speech to your brilliant point in 63. I wasn't a math major, but I think that means he lived five additional years (laughs) after that speech. And by freeze-framing him at the March on Washington, talking about I have a dream, we missed his evolution. So in 63, King is talking about a dream. In the last year of his life, 67 and 68, King is saying publicly, publicly, that the dream he'd had in 63 has become a nightmare. These are his words, that my dream has become a nightmare. In 63, he's talking about integration. By 67, 68, King is saying that I fear that for all that we have done to fight for integration, I fear, these are King's words, that we have integrated into a burning house. That's King's words. In 63, King is talking about integration, and he believes in the future of this democracy. By the time he gets to 67, 68, these are King's words. Uh, Let me back up right quick. The last call that King made from the Lorraine Motel before he was assassinated was to his church in Atlanta at Ebenezer. And he made that call because every week, no matter where he was on the road, he always got back home for church on Sunday morning. And by Thursday or Friday, he had to call in his sermon to his assistant to let them get it typed up to be in the bulletin for Sunday morning. So every Thursday or Friday, wherever he was, he had to call in his sermon topic for Sunday morning. We know now from the research that had King made it back to Atlanta that Sunday, he stood in Memphis on a Thursday, mm-hmm. had he made it back to Atlanta that Sunday morning, he wasn't going to be given a 1963 dream speech. His topic on Sunday morning, his sermon, Byron, was going to be entitled, Why America May Go to Hell. Mm. That was going to be his Sunday morning sermon, Why America May Go to Hell. Now, the operative word is may. He didn't consign America to hell. He didn't condemn America to hell. His point was that if we don't get serious about the racism and the poverty and the militarism in this country, America may just go to hell. Now, you tell students, you tell persons who love Dr. King, who only see him as a dreamer, that King said that we'd integrate into a burning house, or that King said his dream had become a nightmare, and that King was about to advance the notion that America may be going to hell. They have a hard time juxtaposing those two kings. You may have to fight somebody on top of it. Absolutely. Uh, finally, before I let you go, I, I would be remiss broadcasting from WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, the home of the late Dr. Maya Angelou, that I did not ask you to say a few words about your most recent project, My Journey with Maya. I miss her every day. Um, I'm so pleased to say that relative to the King book we announced uh, some weeks back, that the King book is being made into a movie that the brilliant director, J.J. Abrams, and most people know him from his blockbuster work, J.J. Abrams, the guy behind Star Wars and Star Trek and Mission Impossible 5 out this summer. So these are three major franchises, Star Wars, Star Trek, Mission Impossible. But he and I have come together um, to turn this uh, Death of a King book into a movie. And so Warner Brothers is distributing that. So I'm excited about this first movie Congratulations, first of all. Thank you. I'm excited about my first movie project I've ever done, uh, born of one of my texts. And relative to the Maya book, we just announced some days ago that Kenny Leon, the Tony winner, a brilliant, beautiful brother, director of um, Raising the Sun, um, and so many other pieces of work on Broadway, has directed so many Tony winners, including Denzel Washington and Audra McDonald and Felicia Rashad and on and on and on. 
the most regarded uh, black director in, in on Broadway, and nobody does. I think uh, nobody does August Wilson's work better than Kenny Leon does. But uh, Kenny and I just announced that we're turning the Maya book into a stage play. So um, one book is becoming a movie, the other is headed to Broadway. So we 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 had a young brother named Marcus Gardley, a brilliant writer out of Oakland, as a matter of fact, is writing the uh, writing the, the, the stage play for the Maya text. So this book, My Journey with Maya, um, is going to hit the stage, and I'm excited about that. But it really is the story, it's a coming of age story, which works well for the play. You know, two a two character play, but uh, it's a story of um, of my relationship with this with this icon and. It's a coming-of-age tale of uh, a mother and a son, essentially, and uh, what I learned sitting at her feet and how she helped guide me through the most difficult parts of my young journey and educating me about how to be a man and helping me through the mistakes that I made when I fell on my face and and uh, how to get back up and keep moving. But just a wonderful story of a 28-year friendship that started when I was just a kid and Maya Angelou took me on my very first trip out of this country to Africa for almost two weeks, and this, the story begins with with Maya taking me to Africa, and that's where our friendship really blossomed. All I did was carry her bags around. I was just a little gopher, a little errand boy, but that's how the relationship started, me looking out for her. And over 28 years until she died, um, we had a relationship that grew. And um, So the, the, the story, uh, the book is called My Journey with Maya, and I called it that because that's what it was. It was a journey with her for all those years. And so I, I, I'm pleased that the book has done, done, done well and um, looking forward to at some point getting this um, thing, thing on the stage. But it's going to be a busy next year or two working on these projects, but I'm excited about it. Well, that's, that's great. Now, as, as far as the movie goes, it, it, I play a real good scared Negro. So if you do <laughs> so the extra, I can, I can run down the street. Nah, I, that's <laughs> the, one, the one thing I love about you is that you ain't a scared Negro. I, I, I say all the time to your point. There really ain't but two kinds of Negroes. Either you running scared or you running free. Yeah, right. Ain't but two kinds. You running scared or you running free. And sadly, there aren't a whole lot of us who are running free. And when I say running free, all that really means is that people, by, by any other by any other definition, by I think we agree on this, freedom means truth. Yes. If you don't have the freedom to speak the truth and to seek the truth and to stand on the truth and to stay with the truth, if you don't have the freedom to say what it is that you see, and there's a price to pay for this, no doubt about it. King called it a vocation of agony. I love that phrase. That being a truth teller is a vocation of agony. But most of us are not running free. We're running scared. And I've never known you to be a Negro running scared because you know what? A scared Negro will get you killed. I don't hang out with scared Negro. Hey, hey, hey. A scared right. Negro will get you killed. So either you're running scared or you're running free. And if you're running scared, you got to find a way to run free. There's no feeling like it in the world uh, to use the gift and the talent and the skill that God has endowed you with to be a free black man, a free black woman, and to seek that truth and to speak that truth and to stand on that truth and to stay with it. And if life isn't about that, I don't know what it's about. Tavis Smiley, first of all, I want to thank you for your, your unwavering service that you're rendering to this nation. And I also want to thank you, my brother, for being on The Public Morality. I am delighted to be anywhere where you are. The Public Morality is a wonderful, uh, wonderful addition to the discourse that this country so desperately needs. Thank you for being here, and thank you for having me on, Byron. Thank you. That was Tavis Smiley, award-winning broadcaster and author. Coming up. My conversation with author and journalist John Rayleigh to discuss his latest book on eugenics in North Carolina. 
Eugenics is defined as a movement claiming to improve the genetic features of human populations through selective breeding and sterilization, based on the idea that it's possible to distinguish between superior and inferior elements of society. This macabre practice is commonly associated with Nazi Germany. But as John Rayleigh, the editorial page editor of the Winston-Salem Journal, dispassionately demonstrates in his book, Rage to Redemption in a Sterilization Age, it is a profoundly American enterprise. Edwin Black, author of War Against the Weak, Eugenics, and America's Campaign to Create a Master Race, wrote, Rayleigh has raised both hands to lift the bar for all such efforts to follow. In one volume, he has chronicled the contemporary history, illuminated the hazy record, and waved the torch of illumination for all to see the way forward. Never again is the vow, compensation is a down payment on the crimes of our past and the caution of our future. Full disclosure, my opinion column runs weekly in the Winston-Salem Journal, where Rayleigh is the editorial page editor. Now, I, I usually cringe when anyone makes comparisons to, to Nazi Germany. And it usually feels eh, like a cheap historical comparison, often with little or no context. But one of the things I found in your book, that the comparison to Nazi Germany was not only warranted, but a necessity. Can, can you explain why that is? Well, yes, Byron. I mean, I felt just the same way you did. And, and when my friend, um, Representative Larry Womble, um, almost from the beginning of this, he'd been tossing around the word genocide. And as, as much as I like Larry... I would cringe and think, because um, my best friend's Jewish, and I would think, you know, is this really warranted? Is that word really it? And and Edwin Black helped me understand that a lot. I mean, he explained that the that the second definition, UN definition of genocide, is when you're trying to stop a group of people from reproducing. And this certainly fits this, whether you're talking about that group of people as African Americans or poor whites. I mean, that's what they were doing. It was genocide. You know, one of the things that, I was struck when I read your book was not only the United States a predecessor to Nazi Germany in this practice of eugenics, but it also served as a consultant for the uh, Nazi regime prior to the Nazis getting involved. Is that correct? Yes, it, it certainly is, Byron. Yes, that that there were so many things about this story that bucked everything I, I thought I knew, and and that was part of it. That uh, that yes, our there were there were foundations in America sending people over to uh to Germany to teach them this crap and that uh that even in setting up the laws they learned from us. And so this story is just constantly throws bombs on what you think is conventional wisdom. And and though your focus was primarily uh, on North Carolina. Right. Just briefly tell us some of the history of eugenics in America. Right. It started as a progressive movement, late late 1800s, early 1900s, mainly early 1900s. You had like Margaret Sanger that would later, who would later found Planned Parenthood was involved, and it was seen as a, a beneficial thing, um, including by many leading lights. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, endorsed it. Uh, Winston Churchill, although I think Winston Churchill, of course, just like Teddy was was very controversial, but yet they were seen as people that had a lot of good in them, and they they saw this as something good, and it, it so it just ground on, and uh, it wasn't it was it was as World War Two, as as the camps were liberated, that I think that's when people really this whole thing started to unravel, and it it the, the, it was the junk science was falling apart by by the end of the war, but that was what really brought it home. Now. 
and as I stated earlier, the, the focus of your book is North Carolina. And ironically, as you write, that it ha- that North Carolina as a state was certainly one of the more progressive states, certainly in the southern region of the country politically. And at the same time, it embraced one of the most aggressive eugenics programs in the nation. Exactly, and that's the paradox. I always say that the eugenics program in North Carolina went from, it's like three Ps. It started out with progressives, and then it went to paternalism, and it ended up with rank prejudice. And, of course, the great irony in North Carolina was that at the end, as other states are backing off, North Carolina just revs it up And after World War II. And, and, and by the late 50s, early 60s, as North Carolina's ending this well-deserved reputation for peaceful integration, it it begins the the eugenics program here begins to target poor black women and girls of modest means. Um, so it it's just really a, a great irony of the thing. You had Terry Sanford as governor, and as this was going on, who was alone among Southern governors in 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 peacefully integrating. Now you really wrestle. I, at least I felt in your book. I don't. I certainly don't want to put words in your mouth. But at least in your book that I read, you really wrestled with the conundrum of ter- of this going on to some degree while Terry Sanford is governor. Right. Yes, I mean he was he was friends with my father. They weren't close friends, but he was definitely a friend of the family. He he helped um once when my sister um, Mimi was having a housing problem at Duke, he he my father called him and he helped solve that and when she got married in Duke Chapel, he was there. Um he gave one of his last interviews to me probably out of deference to my father and just just a real good guy. So when I found out about this, at first I couldn't believe North Carolina had such a program, and then I thought, well, I'm damn sure that Terry couldn't have known about it. So, so that's that is a big wrestling point in the book. I mean, he was. Um, I think in all of our lives, so much of our anybody's life is about a, the the father figures and the and the people that are friends of your father figures, and and this this was what was tearing my heart out about the whole thing along the way along the course of this story i lost my own father and so it was a lot of wrestling with is this right to even question terry yeah no that's uh that's that's certainly understandable uh yeah now your book is delineated into two parts you you start with the history of eugenics specifically in north carolina and then you you really in the second part go into the journey of you and your colleagues to uncover cover the truth. You sort of touched on that, but I'd I'd like for you to expand on that a little further, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I knew that was a a, a different way to to tell a story like this, especially for somebody a traditional journalist. But uh, it was just organic. It was what I felt was the right way to do it, and I also felt like. It's something that William Styron had taught me that that we all own oppression, that that the victims don't own it singly, that the oppressors own it just as much. And I felt like as in telling my story and my wrestlings with it would maybe help more people that were on the oppression side understand it and understand why this is important and why we all own this. Now, how did you initially get involved in, in, in in this story at all? Um, in the summer of 2002, Kevin Bigos, who was our Washington correspondent, got a got a tip on the program from a good source of his he'd been working, Johanna Schoen, who shared all of her records that in turn an archivist had, had just intentionally kind of shared with her because I think the archivist wanted it to get out. Johanna Schoen wanted it to get out, and Kevin's a great bulldog, and he wanted it to get out, so... 
uh, I was so Kevin initiated this series, and then I was fortunate enough to be included. And my whole job was always the victims, and it was it was like a gift and an honor. It was something up from above for me because just today I've been talking to some of them as the state continues not to tell them what the deal is and when their final payments will come through. But it was what I was meant to do, and I found my redemption in, in feeling like I had finally done something decent and right through journalism and helping them. Tell us about uh, Niall Cox. Am I, say, am I saying that correctly? Yes, Niall, just like the soap, yeah. yes. Okay. Niall's this, this amazing unsung shero, and um, she was one of the first victims I found, and uh, just old shoe leather, and I'm, I'm a dinosaur. I'm, almost, I'm always more comfortable working like this, but I had... I, I, I found a clip that referred to her suit against North Carolina in the 70s. So I found a Plymouth phone book in the newsroom, and I went through every Cox in the phone book. I think it was 10 of them. And finally, on the 10th Cox, I got somebody that said, I said, do you know now Cox? And, we'll, and they said, well, she's a cousin. I said, can I get her number? And they said, well, give us your number, and we'll see if she'll call you. And... um Several nervous days passed, and, and then she sure enough called me, and I, I pulled out my St. Christopher's necklace and gave it a kiss and said, thank you, Lord. <laughs> and uh, and she was she was a little guarded at first, but it was like after her suit had died in the 80s, there had been like this 20-year limbo where she'd never let it go, but nobody had ever asked her about it, and she was so willing to tell her story. And then we just had these a series of happenings come together that that we were able to finally get justice and she's been part of that journey as much as anybody she was amazing because in the 70s she'd been on 60 minutes where mike wallace had tried to condescend to her at one point she's riding a train in to um for an interview with 60 minutes and mike wallace to put it in quotes not my language but his language he said he turned to somebody and said well she must be on cp time meaning in his language, colored people time. And you think of Mike Wallace as this great liberal, but he's talking trash about now. But yet now gets on the show, and he's asking her condescending questions. She's supposed to be – the state of North Carolina labeled her feeble-minded, but she puts him to shame and holds her own. She's amazing. And uh, if we could just back up a little bit, I, I think that this – how she became a victim, I think sort of is um, – reminiscent of, of many people who, who went through this process. I mean, how does she even go through the sterilization process? Right. Her, she's from a large family in northeastern North Carolina, one of those little towns you ride through on the way to the beach and maybe not think about it much. But uh, so because her family's on welfare, then the social services just is into every corner of their life. And uh, so they learn she's pregnant out of wedlock and they start to put the pressure on her, and she doesn't. She doesn't want to give this baby up. Um, she'd already had one. She'd had Deborah, but that, that was her only other child. And 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 she doesn't know. She, she. I'm sorry. So the baby she has is Deborah. But soon after that, they want her to to be to have this sterilization process. And the way they tell it to her, they say, "Well," she says, "Well, what does it mean?" They said, "Well." It'll it'll um, temporarily prevent you from having babies, but if you ever want to get it reversed, you can, which was a lie. And all these people, including a white doctor were, that she trusted, were telling her that. And in the course of the thing, too, she, she's, you know, she's sensing. She's very smart, and she's thinking, maybe, I don't know. What, what are they telling me here? But but they but they rev up the pressure more, and they say, you know, you got to do this, or else we won't, we'll take your whole family off of welfare. Another lie, they couldn't have done that. 
but they were saying, you know, we're not going to support all of y'all. If you don't do this, we'll take everybody off of welfare. So finally, it's like it's like Sophie's Choice or something. It's Niall's Choice. So finally, because of her loyalty and love for her family, she she submits to this operation she doesn't understand because she's protecting her family. So the state government, uh, but by your research, the state government literally threatened her with, you know, to cut her off financially if she didn't right. go through this process. Right, which they couldn't have done, of course. But they, you see these bullying, um, you see it throughout the records and um, throughout interviews with victims where they're, where they're, you know, they're never telling them the whole truth about things. They're just saying, oh, yeah, it's temporary or, you know, no, no, it's fine. Just um, just go ahead and go ahead with us. And it's, it's, it's coercive, it's, but it's the worst word than coercive. It's bullying. Now, there was, at least in theory, an appeals process. Am I correct? Right, right. And it was set up by law where they could take it right up to the meeting of the five strangers in Raleigh of the um, eugenics board. Um, if you ever did, if you probably knew that they could. Once in a while, though, one would, and once in a while, one would uh, overcome, and uh, the, the petition would be dropped. But in most cases, like Niall, they, they didn't even know they could go to Raleigh and fight this. Years later, you know, they find out that these five strangers had, had voted on their lives. North Carolina gave social workers um, unique powers, different from other states, to, to initiate the petition. And most of these petitions were rubber stamped by the five people in Raleigh. So talk about uh, just briefly the you know the, the 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 commission the five people who who was it was it a rubber stamp did they discuss um whether or not this person should uh qualify qualify for this policy how did that work once in a while you would have somebody having qualms about it but this was a de facto board it included like the only elected person on there was the attorney general and then by de facto, it was like the heads of the two state hospitals, the heads of the head of public welfare and the head of state mental health. Most of these people, including the attorney general, would send underlings to it. And everybody's sitting there. They're looking at their watches. The executive secretary, who had enormous power, she had, she just condenses these thick files on these people down to a paragraph. And, you know, she reads in the paragraph and they pretty much sign off um, because they were all de facto positions and it wasn't politicking to get on this board it 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 just kind of uh nobody doesn't get a lot of public attention and uh finally one one last thing i just want to touch on this because i think i think it's it's important that this whole this this process and the way it went through it, it originally started uh as a program to combat poverty am i correct yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I mean it's focus. I'm sorry. I mean it's focus. Well, it originally started in North Carolina. I think that was part of it. Comes in in the depression, but by by way of justifying it, they're they're buying into eugenics and you know saying this is good because you know we can we can in their language they thought they could breed out um, mental and physical disabilities, but but which was of course fallacy by the eugenics as that crumbled. But also, yeah, it was very much about thinning the welfare rolls. Um, as it starts out, it's proportionate to the general population, um, whites, African Americans, a few American Indians. But the great fallacy then by the 1960s, it's predominantly African American women and girls. 
Well, this is a gripping narrative. I certainly encourage all to read. Uh, John, uh, I was honored to, to review this book, and what you've done, uh, I believe, is, is journalism at its best. You, you, in this work, you definitely embody the fourth branch of government, and I want to thank you for being on The Public Morality. Well, thank you so much, Byron, and that means a lot coming from you because I respect your strong work as well, including in 1963, the Year of Hope and Hostility. And I'd also like to thank Winston-Salem State, who was an early supporter of getting the word out on this program and and having speakers in and always being the the forerunner in progressive causes that Winston-Salem State has always been, and I thank them. Well, thank you. That was John Raley, editorial page editor for the Winston-Salem Journal and author of the recently released Rage to Redemption in the Stabilization Age. Coming up, my closing remarks. On the next Public Morality, we speak with Mark Potok of the Southern Poverty Law Center about the rise of hate groups in America. Also, former NBA player and author Donald Foyle discusses his new book on why so many athletes go broke. That's on the next Public Morality. The title of this program is Public Morality. Too often in our discourse, morality has religious connotations. But this show takes its cues not from religion per se, but from the guiding principles embedded in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. We are committed to the preamble that reads, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Those magnificent words, though not expressly stated, were originally intended for white male landowners. But history has proven that sentiment to be too truncated for a nation committed to the notion of we the people. Thus America, since its inception, has lived with the ongoing tension, repeatedly asking the question, who comprises the we and we the people? It has been a question raised by blacks, women, gays and lesbians, and now it's being asked by a diverse coalition of Americans who find themselves on the wrong side of the have versus have not divide. For life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are not merely inalienable rights that spawned a revolution. It is the creed that sustains it. The American Revolution did not end with this country's independence. It is a continuing narrative that we call the American Experiment. In that spirit, the bias of this program is to serve as a starting point for discourse rather than to seek the last word. We may frustrate you by raising more questions than providing answers, but we will maintain a commitment to what is said will always be superior to who says it, for that is the only road that leads to a more perfect union. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.